Hi there. Welcome to Season 2 of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my coaching services, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. Today's guest is Laura Steenberg. Laura is a wife, a mother, a dog owner, a nonprofit development consultant, and a dedicated do-it-yourselfer who loves to spend time with her family, travel, stay up late, and sleep in. Laura is a longtime family friend, so it was a real treat to have her as a guest on the podcast. What really stood out to me in this conversation with Laura is how meticulously she researched every aspect of her treatment options, from her physicians and their treatment recommendations, for fellow patients as far as what they were glad they had done and what they wished they had done differently. Laura has been cancer-free for 10 years. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rob. I'm glad to be here. You are so welcome. For everybody listening, she calls me Rob because family calls me Rob. Everyone else calls me Bert. Oh, sorry. Is, uh, no, it's, <laughs> it's great. It's like, you're a family friend. <laughs> you call me Rob. Uh, so tell everyone, what kind of cancer were you diagnosed with and how old were you? So I was 41 uh, and I had breast cancer. It was early stage breast cancer. So it's what they call stage zero, which sort of makes you think, well, is it cancer? Maybe it's not cancer. So you sort of, and all, mm. all the doctors say to you, no, it's cancer. It's just really early stage. So it's, I had ductal carcinoma in situ, just they short or long for DCIS. Um, so ductal carcinoma, what is it? In situ. The in situ part means, so there, there's lobular carcinoma in situ and ductal carcinoma in situ. Lobular carcinoma in situ isn't as likely, or maybe it's not likely at all, to turn into invasive breast cancer. Ductal carcinoma in situ, hap- and lobal carcinoma in situ happens in the lobes of the breast. Ductal carcinoma in situ happens in the ducts of the breast, um, and when it's in situ, it means it's in place. So that means biologically, it's not yet capable of leaving the ducts of the mm-hmm. breast. And in some cases, in a lot of cases, they think that it won't. In my case, I had enough what they call necrosis, like death of the tissue, and it was really widespread. And so they, it was, I don't remember the terminology they used, but it was high grade enough if it, I may be using the wrong term here, that they were like, yeah, this is like, this will, if you wait, this will turn into full invasive cancer. So. All right. And there was necrosis of the tissue. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like killing off the tissue within the duct, I guess is what that means. I don't like the sound of that. <laughs> I know it sounds horrible. <laughs> yeah, I already have a tumor in me and now I have like dead tissue in me. Like that just sounds yuck. Yeah. Yeah. And actually my diagnosis is a, is an advertisement for mammograms because I just, you know, I was only 41. I actually went in for my first mammogram at 40 and they had seen some what they call calcifications, which are not, you can have calcifications and have them be normal. They're just sort of areas of I, I assume it's like hardened tissue or something that happens when a cells here or there sort of die or something like that and um but mine seemed to be in some sort of pattern and the first mammogram I had they said it's probably I think there's an official term that's like you know likely benign or something like that and then I went back 
six months later and they looked at it and I, I and then they what they do when you have a mammogram is uh, you have a mammogram and then if they think there's something unusual they do ma- or at least at the time they did sort of magnifications and they do some more looking right while you're there so they tell you to wait in the waiting room and they're going to have you back in which is nerve-wracking and then I, I they said I think that we want to have you do a biopsy and I asked has it changed since six months ago and they said no the radiologist said no but uh it's I just think it's worrisome enough that I just think we should be sure um, and I could hear them all consulting in this little side room, all the radiologists, which also mm. was nerve wracking before he came in and said that. Um, and then the hospital that I was at, which is in Boston, um, was great because they have you immediately talk to a social worker in case you have. Uh-huh. Yeah, which was a nice aspect of it. I mean, you're a little, you know, you're nervous, but then that person can help you with any questions that you have. I love that, yeah. that they brought in a social worker because like as a cancer survivorship coach, you know, what I notice is that when folks get diagnosed, they don't think coach or social worker, they think doctor. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't, you know, they have no experience in this. You know, your eyes are like, you know, wide, like saucers and like I have cancer. You're not thinking someone to support me in this, to have someone to, you know, partner with me and support me through this process when in fact it's so wonderful to have someone to support you like that and to immediately reach out and see, you know, what you need and what's coming up for you and what could be addressed in a way that, you know, you're not even. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it helps you have perspective and helps you sort of better understand what you're being told. I mean, I think the part of the problem is that people look to their doctors to play that role sometimes like I've had people talk to me that say well I'm choosing this doctor because I like them because I feel like they're nice or and I'm thinking okay so for an oncologist that's probably not <laughs> like for me the first thing was are they the best at getting every darn cell out of there right <laughs> mm-hmm. and if they're nice that's great <laughs> but I want all the cancer out even if they were just sort of brusque or <laughs> not that easy to talk to. I mean, different people look for different things, but to me, it's like, what is their surgical skill or how, how well do they know radiation and are they, you know, up on the latest techniques? Uh, so it's nice to, you know, have somebody to talk to about it. I love hearing that because for my surgeon choice, I didn't go with the guy at Memorial Sloan Kettering. I went with the surgeon at, uh, Guthrie Sayre, which is not a cancer hospital. You know, he does, my doctor, Dr. Cager, he did other surgeries than cancer. Now, going with the doctor in Memorial would have been a doctor who only does, you know, these uh, colorectal surgeries. And uh, my experience of him was so unpleasant. I was married at the time. My wife wrote a scathing letter because he was just like, you know, it was humiliating for me. And his, he, he heard from one of his uh, students that he was waiting to get to go out to dinner with his wife. And it was a Friday and he was trying to rush us through. And I just noticed like for myself, like how I'm going to feel working with a doctor is hugely important to me. And so I love that. I mean, and I, I love that for you, like 
There's a distinction there between yeah. the two of us. You're like, uh, no, give me the best <laughs> and they can behave however they want to. Yeah, although I don't know that I would have. Like, I, I think it sounds like maybe the doctor you met with was almost like disrespectful, sort of. Like, yeah, it is an extreme example. And I will say two things. One, I don't mention his name on the podcast because I'm only going to promote positive things. I'm not going to, yeah. you know, promote uh, people's mistakes and failures. And, a friend of mine who had a recurrence uh, went and saw him. She had a recurrence after I was diagnosed. I went and saw him at a terrible experience. She went and saw him and loved him. Yeah. And my hope is that the letter that my wife wrote, you know, had someone sit down with him and say, "Hey, doc, like, what's going on?" Yeah. You know, we we and and that's that's totally okay. We all have our moments in life yeah. where like we have taken a left turn and someone straightens us out. And it never feels good. But then you return to center, and my hope is that he's doing a great job with people. But so yes, that was an extreme example. But I—I uh, I mean, I do think I do think people assess doctors differently because the doctor that I used, somebody else had said that she was a great doctor, but like her bedside manner wasn't perfect or something. And I thought, oh my gosh, I loved my doctor to death. Like I recommend her to every single person who has mm -hmm. breast cancer in Boston. She's at Mass General Hospital. I just thought everything about the experience was great. So I just think, you know, maybe people have different <laughs> expectations or, or yeah. judgments or it's a different day or a different moment or people, you know, doctors mm -hmm. have life stressors too. <laughs> sure, yeah. And yeah. so this is an oncologist you're speaking about? Yeah, surgical oncologist, yeah. All right. When I went to Memorial Sloan Kettering, my surgeon, his name is Dr. D'Angelica. I think it's Michael D'Angelica. And he had a wonderful bedside manner and... He had mentioned to me that I'd be working with Dr. Kemeny and that, you know, usually it's reverse. Usually, you know, the, the oncologist has a wonderful bedside manner and surgeons tend to be a lot more technical. And that he had a wonderful bedside manner and she was the one who just kind of had a way more technical attitude. But I still ended up creating a, you know, really great warm relationship with her. Not warm inside of the context of Dr. Kemeny because she's still pretty, you know, yeah. rigid, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's but, different people who choose different specialties, and in part, it's because of who they are, right? Like they, yeah, and yeah. there's tendencies that they go certain ways. Yeah, but yeah. You really loved your oncologist. I did. She's a surgical oncologist. She's a surgical oncologist because I so so I was diagnosed, and then they sent me for a stereotactic biopsy, which is was very difficult because I sat in a chair with wheels on it, and you have to hold crazy still in it the chair kept I she's like can you stop you know what did she say you can't talk because I was I would sort of giggle and I would move things mm -hmm. and then she was like try not taking such deep breaths and I'm thinking what because what they do is they put you in a mam it's basically you're getting a mammogram while they try to locate the tissue because it's small enough that they need to use the mammogram to locate what they're taking the biopsy of um, and so it was, and your arms up on something, so it goes completely numb and you're trying to sit still and you're nervous because they've told you maybe you have cancer. Um, and so they did that. And then they told me, they called me back and said, we don't, we didn't get good enough, a good enough sample because it's very small. And so we're going to have to do a surgical biopsy and... Then I thought when they had done the mammogram, they said there were a couple of areas that looked questionable. And so I said, 
to the doctor who was going to do the surgery, like on the phone in advance. I said, so are we going to biopsy two areas? And she said, no, they just, radiology said just to biopsy the one area. And I said, well, but if we're in there and they said it was two areas, shouldn't we take two? And she said, no, no, that's not what it says. So I actually called the radiology department and asked to talk to my radiologist, the one who had met with me. And I said, she's, you know, my doctor, the surgeon, surgeon wants to do just what biopsy one area. Should we do two? And he said, oh yeah, we put that order out there. It's, it says, I checked the records. We said to biopsy the two areas and there was a communication failure, right? The surgeon didn't get that information. And luckily, I mean, I was not on the table. I was not at the hospital. I was days in advance. And so they made sure that she got that. And then what resulted is they did a biopsy of the two areas and both were positive. So it was widespread enough. Like, so what they do is if they break the breast down into quadrants, right? And if it's in only one quadrant, often they'll recommend a lumpectomy, but mine was in at least two quadrants. And they said, you know, if we do a lumpectomy, you'll have like no breast left anyway. So we recommend a sickle mastectomy. So having two a biopsy of two areas changed their recommended course of action. So it went from lumpectomy to... To mastectomy. So they re- mastectomy they, okay. Yeah, they recommended a single mastectomy because it was widespread enough. But I mean, it's just a... There are several things in the process, I'm sure you've experienced this, where it's sort of like the people, the individual people are really skilled. It's just that the communication and the information passing can get yeah and it's so important i imagine you do as well this encouraging self-advocacy like look they're going to miss things and they're not going to always keep the big picture in mind and someone's going to do exactly as they were told regardless of x y and z and i love that you spoke up and called and otherwise you know you would have had your biopsy and then they would have said, oh, well, they're supposed to do two, but we already found it. So, you know, who knows what they may have done. Yeah, you don't go back in and do another biopsy, probably. <laughs> and so it's possible that they could have left tissue in there. I mean, I like I don't I always worry about worrying other people. I mean, generally, doctors are very good and maybe it would have corrected itself. Maybe I was ahead of the game and two days later she would have gotten the information without me intervening. But I always think like, don't hesitate to reach out to doctors because it's hard. You know, sometimes it's hard to get in touch with somebody or you don't know whether this feels, it it feels like, oh, they have more more important things to do, but it's your body and that's their job. Like I'm always, that is the one thing. Like, so I don't expect a doctor to have perfect bedside manner, but I do expect them to answer my questions. I don't expect them to rush me out of the, the examining room. Um, if I make a request, I don't want them, you know, I don't expect them to get into big arguments with me. I don't, I don't mean like I wasn't doing anything controversial, but mm-hmm. yeah. you know, I said to my doctors, I don't want the resident doing the surgery. I want you to do it. Cause in many cases, especially like for the plastic surgeon, like they can be working two two operating rooms at one time. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if, so you have to make your wishes known and it's your right to do that. But at any teaching hospital, it's very common for them, you know, different doctors have different thresholds as to what they'll allow the resident to do um, and what level resident and what, you know. And so I made it pretty clear that I was not 
you know, this was a big thing. Like I'll let residents, I had a resident give me an epidural when I was having the kids and they, they're, they're in most appointments that I have for other kind of doctors. You know, I had a resident take off a mole for the dermatologist, but that's a lot less consequential. So. Yeah, absolutely. It's another valuable piece of information you're handing along is like you actually get to ask to be, you know, uh, actually get to ask that the doctor do the work and that you don't, you don't have to accept their choice. Well, and I, and yeah. And I think that like the reason you choose a doctor is because they're a really great doctor, right? Like you're, you're not choosing someone that's only a couple years out who may be a great doctor and may eventually be a great doctor. But I mean, it sounds maybe so selfish, but it's like, I don't want somebody to practice on me. I don't want to be the practice case. I want to be like, I want to have somebody who has years of experience behind them. So it's your life, first of all. Yeah. And secondly, a big part of navigating a cancer diagnosis is making sure you have the emotional support you need. Yes. And because the body's going to heal differently when you are feeling relaxed versus stressed and worried. And that gave you peace of mind. And that, that is part of the treatment. Yeah, I absolutely. I mean, I think that even your choice of medical treatment has to be based on who you know yourself to be. Right. Like, I, I mean, we can talk about that later when I talk about what choices I made. But, you know, you have to sort of know yourself and how comfortable you are with future risk and things like that. Right. So, yeah. And as far as advocating for yourself and making requests, my first oncologist told me that I would just get blood work and scans to make sure there was no recurrence. There's no need for treatment. And then my wife said, well, he had stage two T4, which is like, you know, really close to the lymph node. She's like, shouldn't there be chemotherapy? He goes, oh, you're right. Yes. <laughs> six months. Yeah. Six months of chemo versus nothing at all. Yeah. Just by reminding. Yeah. And then there was a different oncologist in there because this one had left and the new guy came in yeah. and he said, okay, well now that you are cancer free, we'll just give you blood work every you know, three months. I said, there were no markers in my blood when I was diagnosed. So might it be better to have a CT scan? He goes, yeah, that's actually a good idea. And then I said, and it was stage two, but it was T4. So it was like kissing the lymph nodes practically. Like, yeah. would a PET scan be better? It's like, yeah, actually, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. So I went from blood work to PET scans Yeah. because I spoke up. And as much as we don't want to scare people, we actually want people, we actually kind of want to just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just enough to bring your attention to self-advocacy and how important it is. Yeah, I mean, I think we forget, like for doctors, they're not gods and they're just people and this is their job and they have the next patient who also has cancer. And so I think that it's so important. To me, I sort of like say, think of like advocating for yourself as the same as just asking a ton of questions. Right. Like, so why are you choosing this versus that? Or what would be my options? Like you're recommending option A, but why is B off the table? Or um, because I think even when I was pregnant, this one, this was just before I, I had my kids, before I had cancer. I remember saying to my doctor who I adored, 
and still, you know, she's amazing. I said, okay, so I was going to be 36 when I had my second child, which technically, you know, nowadays it's not that old, but technically like put me mm-hmm. over that, it, that 35 age limit where they say you're like an older, I can't remember the technical term. But, and I said, so if I'm going to have for my 20 week ultrasound, where are the best places to go? What, like, where, what's, what, if I want to get like the best, most accurate ultrasound, where do I go? And she said in Boston, there are only three places I would send you. And two of them were the same hospital base. And I said, really? And she said, yes, because those are the only places where they're doing neonatal or, you know, like 20 week ultrasounds all day, every day. She said with ultrasound, you want to go someplace where they're, they, they've been looking at, they look at this day after day, hour after hour, and they are so familiar that they'll catch things. And my friend who went to the same doctor didn't get her ultrasound at one of those places. I mean, she ended up being fine, but she didn't ask. And so she didn't get that advice. Right. Right. So it's just like, and it's not that the doc, I just think you have so many patients and different people care about different things and you can't talk for three hours each patient. So you have to let them know what you care about, what's important to you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, as far as, you know, people speaking up and advocating for themselves, you know, sometimes it's difficult to do that. And I just want to take a moment to say, you know, maybe someone may have no support. They may not have a family member who's at their appointment with them. They can bring a friend. If they don't have a friend and they feel like questions aren't being answered, they can ask for the social worker. And if the social worker is not available, every hospital has a patient advocate. Right, yeah. You know, we had to call the patient advocate when, (laughs) after my first surgery, um, I told the doctor's student, you know, it was a teaching school, Mm -hmm. and I said, I am in so much pain right now. And she said, you are on a lot of pain meds. Like, you're fine. <laughs> I said, and my wife said, excuse me? And he, she said, well, he's on X, you know, milligrams of morphine and he's on Ativan and this and that. So he can't possibly be in that much pain. And she looked at her. She goes, my wife says, my husband said he was in pain and you're telling me he's not. She's like, yeah. So my wife call, immediately called the patient advocate. Yeah. And I don't know if they met in person or on the phone. And within 10 minutes, my surgeon you know, gave me a prescription for, you know, for more medication. And I clearly had a conversation with this student. It's like, you don't ever get to tell a patient they're not in pain. I mean, if yeah. you're reducing pain medication to keep them from dying, okay. Because you could, there is, there is a maximum a body can handle. But this young student yeah. decided that she knew better than me. And... You call the uh, patient advocate instantly. That's interesting. You have support. Yeah, I know. I didn't. I, I've never done that. I know. I mean, I would say the other thing is if you're having a. I assume the patient advocate also helps um, if it's a there's a language barrier. Like I've seen that Mm -hmm. um, in hospital rooms that I've been in where the the patient has uh, somebody who's fluent in the language that they speak so that they are, but there's better communication with the doctors, but I've never ca- had to call luckily a patient advocate, but yeah, I do. Actually, my husband had said, you could be a good patient advocate, but I don't, they probably have a medical background. I just know enough about <laughs> stuff and I'm pushy enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, it, there yeah. is support out there for people to find it. You yeah. said you love the uh, social worker, like, that you immediately went to a social worker and you said it was really helpful. I'd love to know more about that. 
It didn't. I actually didn't end up talking with the social worker after the first time. It was just nice to have somebody who had some more information and um, had sort of unlimited time. I'm a talker, so if you, you'll see mm-hmm. that, you know, I'm I. I think sometimes you need to talk it through. Some people probably were like, I don't want to talk to you. I just want to go home and, you know, be alone or cry in my mm-hmm. pillow or something. But I, yeah. but for me, I'm immediately sort of researching, you know, like, okay, so where does this fall? And what if it was this? And, you know, I had a lot of what ifs in my head. You know, what are the statistics <laughs> for, for mm-hmm. various things? Like, what is the likelihood that this is, you know, and this is, you know, stage four? What is the likelihood? I mean, really early on, I'm like, what is the likelihood I'm going to see my kids graduate from high school? <laughs> you know, you're, you have those sort of questions and, in a lot of ways, like they're like, well, this we don't even see a lump, right? It's not like a mass, so we have to get in there and see. But because you caught it so early and it's on mammogram, it's likely to be earlier stage, and you know, so they can sort of reassure you to some extent. And I think that that is, you know, you you don't have other people that you can talk to right away usually in your life that have any experience with what. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're smart, you build a community that does, but. Um, and so it's nice to have somebody who has some time to reassure you and not just be a doctor. Like, you know, not just... Yep. Um, yeah, somebody who can take the time to talk with you is what I'm hearing you say. That yeah. Help you sort through it as you get diagnosed. I remember when my wife and I went down to meet with a doctor who gave me the colonoscopy and said, you know, you have rectal cancer. Hmm. Like, what... You know, I said, what does that mean? Where exactly is the rectum? Where in the body? So he had a, a little notepad, and on it was a, you know, just a little drawing, a little colored basic drawing of the yeah. GI tract, and he put a little X where the tumor was. And I'm in such an emotionally charged response and state of mind that I said to him, may I have that piece of paper? Yeah, yeah. And he kind of gave me a look like, uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> This is not an official thing, yeah. But it was like, it was the most information I'd had at that point. Right, exactly. I probably asked him and then the surgeon that we went and saw immediately after, I probably asked them the same question four or five times and had no idea because all I'm thinking is, I have cancer, what? Yeah, yeah, exactly. How am I going to go to work? Who's going to, you know, how are we going to raise the children? I had a five-month-old baby and a nine-year-old stepson. I'm like, um, I wasn't thinking clearly at all. And, you know, if there had been a social worker to go talk to, it would have been wonderful. My wife and I would have just chewed their ear off. Yeah, I think, I mean. (laughs) Which helps. Yeah, and I think anybody you can talk to, like at some point, I, I didn't end up with a cancer that required as involved a treatment, but I had asked my surgical oncologist, well, should I, you know, is there a nutritionist I can talk to? And she said, sure. She said, most people don't ask for that until after their treatment and I, or after, you know, their surgery or, and I thought, oh gosh, you know, no, like that's something you would want to think about right away. No. So I, you know, I mean, all those things, it's like, what kind of support do I think I need or what do I, you know, I'm the kind of person who's like, I want to do every damn thing right. So that later if, if it recurs or it's, you know, like that, I don't say I wish I had done X, Y, Z. I thought about it, but I was too afraid to ask, or I thought it wasn't right or something. You know, you can ask dumb questions and selfish questions because it's your life. 
Again, so important. My friend who called me when I was diagnosed, she'd been diagnosed like uh, a couple years before me. And she told me that she was afraid to ask the doctor questions because she didn't want to offend him if he was going to be her doctor. And so she didn't. Now, this is a woman who was very, very high ranking in the New York State correctional system. Yeah. Like, this is a powerful woman who has all kinds of conversations with very powerful people all the time. She's not an intimidated person. And when she got diagnosed, she retracted back to you know, a smaller persona and didn't ask for what she needed, and she regretted it. Yeah. So she, and she told me, she's like, you get to say how your treatment goes. She said that so many times. She said, the doctors work for you. You approve the insurance. You have to sign saying, yes, I want them to work for me. You get to ask as many questions. She's like, get additional diagnoses. Yeah, well, that's what, I mean, once I... I ended up getting the biopsy results back and they recommended a single mastectomy and they said it because they said it was widespread. And then uh, she sent me to a plastic surgeon and the plastic surgeon's about reconstruction because with, unlike with other, you know, things you get that, you get your breasts, you can get them reconstructed. And she Mm -hmm. said, well, I recommend the surgery where they take your latissimus dorsi, which are back muscles, and you move them around front and you create breasts out of them or a breast out of them. And I said, well, don't I need my back muscle? (laughs) (laughs) Aren't they there for a reason? And she's like, oh, most people adjust quite fine. I remember her telling me that there's some rock climber that she had that she did it on. And and I said, well, but what if I don't want to do that? She's like, no, that's what I recommend. She really wouldn't budge and she wouldn't talk to me about implants. She wouldn't talk to me about anything else. And it was weird. And so I then both for, you know, for the, and my breast, the breast surgeon at the first place, the place I was diagnosed said only a single mastectomy. She wouldn't talk to me about a double mastectomy. And so I went and got a second opinion. Mass General Hospital is really amazing. So what they do, at least with breast, or at least they did this 10 years ago with breast cancer patients, when you're getting a second opinion is you go in, you t- you send, you get the slides or whatever, you know, the, the biopsy sent to them and you make an appointment. And in that appointment, I, it, I was there for some period of time. I saw the surgical oncologist. I saw a radiation oncologist, I think is what she was called. And I saw a genetic, you know, the person who does genetic testing. So for breast cancer, maybe for all cancers, they do um, like they test you for the bracket, the one and two maybe now there are even others they test you for um and they do this whole thing where they ask about family members and who's had cancer and you know things to see if there are any predispositions or tendencies in the family um and and then they all come back to you and tell you what they thought of that what they look you know they looked at the slides they talked to you they 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 like all they met they all met and talked about what they should do. And now this is what they're recommending, which is really amazing. All in one door, one day. So you're there yes. for like three hours. And by the end, you're like, I've got a comprehensive recommendation, which was awesome. And I said to that surgeon, I, the only thing I didn't have is any plastic surgery thing. And I said to that surgeon, so my understanding is that I can have a single mastectomy but I said, why would I not consider a double mastectomy? Because if I have a single mastectomy, I then have to have mammograms every six months. I have a, it was something high, It was like two or three or four times higher risk of breast cancer in the remaining breast 
compared to an average person. And I have to take tamoxifen, which puts me possibly into premature menopause and has all sorts of side effects. Um, I said, if I have a double mastectomy, I have never have a mammogram again. I reduce my breast cancer risk to less than 2%. And um, I don't have to take tamoxifen. And so why would I choose to have a, why wouldn't I choose to have a double mastectomy? And she just looked at me and said, most of my patients your age do choose to have a double, have a double mastectomy. And so it was a totally different attitude. It wasn't like, I mean, the first surgeon was like, this is what they say to do. Like, we're just recommending that. And that's the protocol. And the second doctor was like, it's your life and you're young and I'm like, let's go for it. Yeah, there's a standard of care that doctors will follow. And what I'm hearing you say is you're doing the research, you're doing the math, and you're like, you know, why would I keep the other breast and increase the likelihood of recurrence and have to put myself through way more and put this drug into my body, which can cause you know, premature menopause? And what I'm hearing as you speak is, hmm, what I'm wondering is I wonder if there are some women who think to themselves, I guess men get breast cancer too, so let's just say some yeah. people who think to themselves, I want to stay intact. I want to have yeah. my body and that and that matters to them and to you. You were like, I'm breaking this down. I'm doing the math. I'm looking at the statistics and why would I do that? And your doc says, yeah. Yeah. And I just sort of, the thing is, I was just, I know myself, I know people who are very bright, very capable, not making the decision out of emotion that decided, I know somebody who had cancer twice who decided not to have a mastectomy against the doctor's wishes, right? Because she wanted to stay intact. I also think it may have been because the plastic surgeon did what my first plastic surgeon did, which was like, you should use your back muscles. And she was like, I don't want to do that. Um, but, uh, so people do make different choices for different reasons. I just know myself and I, I do like, I, so I suffer from anxiety that started after I had kids, which at the time, I'm not sure anybody realized there was such a thing as postpartum anxiety, <laughs> but mm. now they do. Um, and so I knew myself enough to know that the biggest thing I worry about, really the only thing I worry about is my health. Cause it's the thing over which you have the least control. Right. And so um, I thought if I leave something to chance, if I don't, you know, like to me, I just wanted to do everything I could to bring the chances as low as possible to recurrence. And I I remember saying I've said to people, so if somebody said, I'm going to chop off part of your body, (laughs) like you have to pick something that I'm going to (laughs) chop off as a woman who had already had kids the, the breasts would go, right? <laughs> I mean, my fingers, my toes, my nose, my ears, right? Like, I mean, there's very little that's useless. <laughs> but, um, but I think that like, and different people, you know, for me, I, it wasn't important for my sense of being a woman or my femininity or my sense of self to keep my body intact. I was worried about whether I'd feel at home in my own body. I remember asking so what I had done before I went and talked to the Mass General Hospital people is I found five women in the community that had had pretty much the exact same diagnosis as I did, the DCIS, yeah. and I went and interviewed them. Like I went in with questions like you would with a doctor 
And everyone, after the first one, sort of said, well, I hadn't expected this, or I didn't know that, or I didn't know that implants were, you know, were sort of painful or uncomfortable. And I I started asking everybody, so what do you wish you had known mm. in advance? That's a great question. And everybody, every single person was like, I wish I had asked about this, or I wish I had known about that. One woman was really so angry about the fact that implants were uncomfortable that every appointment she would yell at her doctor at the plastic surgeon about oh it. Like, why didn't you tell me? Um, so I just, and that's where I sort of, I have this list of questions that I share. That's where I, how I put together questions for my doctors when I went in to see them. And I have this list that I share with people that I talk to one for a surgical oncologist and one for the plastic surgeon. And like here I sort of genericized them, if that's a word. And so that it's not, you know, it's, it's not like specific to my experience so that they'll, they have questions to help guide them. Cause sometimes it's hard to even come up with them. Yeah. Did you bring that list with you today? I did. I have it in front of me. <laughs> I'm, wanna, wanna, will you read it for everyone? I'm miss, it's a long list, so I won't read everyone. But the, okay. the kind of questions, like, so I had a woman say to me that she was going to have a single, mas- I can't remember if it was a lumpectomy or a single mastectomy, and go on tamoxifen. She was younger than I. She was in her 30s. And earlier in the conversation, she had said that she wanted, she wanted more children. And I think she was probably, uh, she was around like mid thirties. And then she told me she was going to have a sickle mastectomy. And, and I said, well, if they said what you're going to do, what the follow on treatment is. And she, she talked about tamoxifen and I sort of took a deep breath and I was like, so have they explained the, the, what tamoxifen does? And, and sh- I said, you'll probably have to put, it will affect your fertility. I think is what, and she's like, what do you mean? And I said, well, for at least oh the years that you're on it, you can't get pregnant because it's hormones and maybe it puts you into early menopause. And she had, her doctor hadn't told her that, but she, of course she also hadn't told her doctor that she wanted more children. Mm. Um, and so it's those kind of questions, right? Like if I, um, I'm trying to see where I have, like, where it's like, I want, if you want children, ask about the implications of the recommended treatment on your ability to have children. There you go. Right? And so, uh, and then, you know, so I have, like, what are the pros and cons of a double mastectomy? Would you advocate for or against one or the other for me? If I have a single mastectomy, will I have to have additional treatment that I won't need to have if I do a double mastectomy or vice versa, Right. Um, you know, and then the, the, yeah. all the statistics, right. Um, it is, uh, so for radiation for me, it was like, is there a way to gauge up front how likely it is that I'm going to have radiation? Um, do you, I had something called direct to implant, which is not, at least at the time was not that common, which means that in the surgery where they took out all the breast tissue, instead of putting, usually they put expanders in. And expanders mm-hmm. stretch the tissue so that you can fit an implant in and stretch the muscle. Because the, at the time, I think they're doing it differently now. At the time, and may probably still largely, they put um, implants under the, the muscles of your chest, which is okay. very interesting because when you tighten them up, it, <laughs> that means your breasts move around a lot. But, um, wow. And so there are certain people that um, they are able certain plastic surgeons who could do this at the time were able to just put the implant in directly without doing expanders and expanders are sort of more 
I think it, what it is is that they have seams. Uh, an implant is all smooth all around the sides, right? But it has, okay. um, uh, like, it's a bag, basically. It's like a plastic bag full of silicone or water. And, um, and it's uncomfortable to put in there. And it has a little port where they slowly fill it. So they put it in when it's unfilled or little, filled very little. And then they, uh-huh. they, they fill it periodically at appointments to further expand the tissue. Um, but they had said to me, actually, my, my surgical oncologist said to me, you know, you should go see such and such a plastic surgeon because I think you're a candidate for direct to implant. And so, like, that was really important. And then I, actually, somebody you know that's from Auburn, where their family has a strong history of breast cancer, one of the girl women had had surgery at Mass General Hospital. And when her cousin told her that I had implants put directly in, she was sort of mad. (laughs) She's like, why didn't they offer that to me? I didn't even know that was an option. Um, And so, uh, I mean, I think part of it was that I had breastfed and I had, there's a lot of tissue. You know, I was like, I said to the plastic surgeon, so you're telling me I have saggy boobs, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have tissue. But then you go in and they say, you know, so so even just asking about, like, is that an option? Like, knowing what other – because that one's just purely cosmetic. And so some people, the doctors, I think, will think that you want big breasts <laughs> because they're used to be doing, you know, doing surgery and, um, you know, people who just get surgery <laughs> to get bigger breasts. And I was sort of like, I just don't want to be – so what a lot of people don't know is if you have it, a mastectomy and you don't do reconstruction, you're sort of indented. Uh. So I thought at first that you would look like a little kid, right? And I was thought, oh, that's fine. I don't need breasts. But I didn't want to be, I didn't want to feel, uh, to me that would have felt like deformed sort of, or, you know, they would have not felt like I was normal, like I felt normal in my own body. Like I wanted to have, at least have it be flat, right? Um, right. So what it sounds like you're saying is it's one thing to have it appear like a child would look, but to have an appearance to yourself that doesn't even look like any age human would have. It just puts you in a category that just didn't feel. Yeah, right. I think I worried that it would call attention to like my attention to the fact that, okay, I had breast cancer, which I guess it still does, but, but it not in such a way that, and I would, and then just even things like a bathing suit, like I would have been fine wearing a bathing suit where, which is what you always think about when you think about getting about breast, breast reconstruction. And then I thought, well, but then I'd have to wear something in there. Otherwise it would stand out in public that there was something that I'd gone through. Whereas if you were just flat, somebody could think, Oh, she just never really, (laughs) she's just really flat. (laughs) Um, and so that was really helpful to me. So some of the, of the, of the questions that I have, like there's, there's questions about the treatment and I, there's even questions about like how many breast surgeries have you done? Um, you know, how many do you do in a year? How many have you done, you know, over your career? Um, I've done that. I did that even when I got a colonoscopy. (laughs) I asked, how many do you do? Because I think Mm -hmm. that barring, you know, them being disrespectful or, you know, not a good fit for other reasons that you tend to want people who have done, who do it a lot whatever it is that you're having done. If you're having an appendectomy, you want somebody who does a lot of appendectomies. If you're having, 
you know, breast cancer surgery, you want somebody who's really good at getting the tissue out of there, which takes practice. Absolutely. When I went to the doctor for my recurrence, I went again back to Guthrie and Sarah, Pennsylvania. And uh, the doctor I met with was the one who came up with doing liver surgery. And what they do is they put a, they, I, I don't know the exact language, but they basically put like, you know, they attach, you know, probes like to your feet and then they touch these pads to where the surgery was and it sears the skin with electricity, hmm. I believe. And someone's probably listening to this going like, wow, you couldn't have butchered that any worse <laughs> than you just did. I know, I worry but about my, saying something wrong. <laughs> I am not a doctor. Nothing I say is with any educated, uh, from an educated point of view, it's all just from my personal experience. But the point is he came up with the process to do liver resections. Yeah. And... I still chose the doctor at Memorial Sloan Kettering because doctor at Memorial Sloan Kettering, he said, I do them all the time. <laughs> like every week, you know, many of them. And I, you know, and he again had a, had a wonderful bedside manner, which clearly matters to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he had the experience and uh, it made such a difference to, uh, yeah. to go with a doctor who had done so many. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, I think a lot of times people are, I told, told somebody this for some procedure. I said, well, find out. Um, I asked, asked the first time I had, I had a colonoscopy twice, but once, um, the first time I said, how many perfs, <laughs> how many perforations have you had in your career? And he'd only had two, and it was the first year he was doing colonoscopies. He'd been doing it for over 10 years. I was like, okay, that's pretty good, right? But um, he had sort of opened the door by saying something about, the number of colonoscopies he did a year. And, and so I said, and he had talked about the risks already. So I realized like, you can ask a doctor about that. I mean, if he said, you know, uh, 50, (laughs) you know, like that would be very different. And so I think you can ask them without, you know, you don't want to get into every little detail, like tell me about this one and tell me about that one, but you can get a, you can get a sense, right? So you just brought something to my attention. I noticed when you said to him, how many perfs it, you know, do you get have a year? A part of me cringed. And I thought to myself, I wouldn't want to say that because I wouldn't want to make him uncomfortable. Yeah. And I'm sharing that because I've had cancer twice. Yeah. Like, it's really important for me to notice where am I uncomfortable? Where am I willing to play small to not make someone else uncomfortable? And then notice, without judgment, that actually puts my life at risk yeah and it puts my son and stepson at risk of not having a father yeah. my siblings of not having a sibling like it's I, I love that you are so comfortable asking those questions and you just kind of lit a fire under me and got me excited like yeah you get to ask those questions yeah and I think and you can ask them not in a way that makes people feel bad about that. like I just think I mean if the doctor isn't a good doctor then and you make them feel uncomfortable well <laughs> but if they're a good doctor they're going to be proud of their statistics and they're going to say oh I only had this many <laughs> but he also knows you're really paying attention to, you know? <laughs> yeah he's gonna be extra careful on you because he just told you he's very good so we better live up to that expectation <laughs> Um, yeah. So yeah, some folks are great at asking questions that don't leave people feeling challenged. They really get that you're curious and you want to be clear. Yeah. And you're seeking information. 
And uh, the other point you made is if they get really uncomfortable and start squirming, well, that's a really good sign to maybe go to a different dog. Yeah, well, and get a different opinion. I mean, the one, th- the first thing that I always tell people, although people seem, a lot of people are really overwhelmed by cancer diagnoses, and I think they're eager to move fast, and they aren't able to process everything. I always say, get a second opinion. Like, most insurances will cover a second opinion. My insurance said... I called them and they said, we'll cover a third and a fourth, like whatever, you know, I had really good insurance, but, but a second opinion, if you get a second opinion and they both say, do the exact same thing and they provide the same kind of answers, then you know that it's probably a pretty good, you know, direction to take. If they say Mm -hmm. very different things, then you realize maybe I need a third opinion, but it's uh, I, it's really the same as like hiring a contractor to work on your house. Like when I get my roof done, I have three quotes and I ask them, so what kind of underlayment would you use, and what kind of you know what? And and so if if they if the first two say very different things, and I think oh I need to do a little homework on this, right? You know you learn a lot in the opinion getting. Yeah, and so I just think to feel. You want to know medically you did the right thing and you want to feel peace of mind about the choices that you've made afterwards. And the best way to do that is to seek out information. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, And touching on something we spoke about earlier, which is, you know, self-advocacy and having people to support you. The first time I was diagnosed, I was married and my wife and I, we were just a team and we were constantly coming up with questions and we'd walk in with our lists and, uh, had multiple opinions uh, after I was diagnosed. Uh, the second time I was diagnosed and my wife and I had split up, I was feeling pretty crushed about the whole thing. And I had, again, you know, this one doctor I saw when the recurrence happened. And then I scheduled another appointment in, uh, at Rochester, so I believe it was Strong Memorial. Yeah. And uh, that doctor was just like, it was kind of like I was wasting his time. He couldn't understand why I was there. He's like, yeah, we do the exact same thing this doctor's doing. Like, kind of almost rolling his eyes at me. It was really insulting. Yeah. And a buddy of mine said, did you call Memorial Sloan Kettering? I'm like, no. He's like, why? I said, dude, you know, it's four hours away. You know, it's, he's like, what, is it rides you're worried about? I'll give you rides. Yeah. Well, then I got to have treatment. Okay, you need rides for treatment. I'll give you rides for treatment. I looked at him. I'm like, really? He's like, dude, like you've got the mecca of cancer hospitals four hours away from you. Why would you not go there? And I just got that, like, I felt emotionally crushed. I didn't feel strong. I didn't feel confident. And he lit that fire under me, and it was fantastic. And that's where I ended up getting my treatments. And he ended up bringing me down every... He brought me down there, like, two or three times. And then finally I turned to him one day, and I said, I have to go down to the city again. This is every month or so, every five weeks. They're working in tandem with my local oncologist. I said, would you like me to you know, get someone else to give me a ride if I can? He's like, that would be really great. But for the first few rides, I was just so emotionally overwhelmed. I was just calling him and telling him it was time to go again, you know, until I realized, like, wait, I uh, you can get other people to help me with this. And um, I just like people to know that, you know, yeah, like I went from being someone who was not afraid to ask any questions and willing to go anywhere. You know, we went down to... Uh, Philly and went to Cancer Treatment Centers of America for a second opinion and we had to get airlines tickets and fly down there and as when I was married and when I wasn't I just kind of curled up and was playing small and I just want everyone listening to know it's like 
nothing is is really so few things in life are linear you know that we think they are they appear to be but like you know yeah. your how you how we operate in life can just up and down and back and forth and, and, and it's not linear and there's so many layers involved in anything that's happening and so get second opinions get third opinions ask questions get uncomfortable do like laura did because you're clearly a rock star when it comes to dealing with your doctors <laughs> and i just I, I so acknowledge you and so appreciate what you're sharing yeah and i i mean i would say like even with the plastic surgeon like it, when you, if you worry that I think what you said is right. Like if they squirm or if they don't want to take questions, it should, that's where I like, I guess I don't consider that bedside manner. I consider that being a good doctor, right? The ability to answer questions. And so like with my plastic surgeon, so the second plastic surgeon that I saw didn't say use the latissimus dorsi. He didn't even say, broach that. At the time I was so thin that he said, we can't use your abdominal muscles or or fat or whatever it is, which is a typical thing. He said, I would just, you know, recommend implants. I could do direct to implant. I think like you don't find out until after, like they decide in the surgery, but, um, he always had two or three, you know, med school students or residents or with it, which is a little weird. Cause you're talking about your breasts, with three or four yeah. people. Um, but I would come in and, uh, with my questions and sort of sit Indian style on the, on the exam table. And the third time I saw him, I think, he had, you know, his, his entourage of med school students or residents. And he said, watch this. She has a lot of good questions. And he was sort of <laughs> amused by the fact that I came in with the questions. And he would use it to, like, like with the residents. Like, so, you know, it's like, because often doctors will sort of quiz the, you know, what would you do in this case? Or what do you think the diagnosis is? Um, so he, it didn't, it wasn't an issue for the doctors at all. And because I had written them down at the time, I had a little notebook. Um, I could get through them. I wasn't trying to remember. And I mean, I, you have to appreciate that doctors do have a lot of patients to see. So if you're organized about asking the questions, it helps them have time to answer them, which is why I think, I think it's hard to come up with the questions too. I came up with mine from talking to other people that have been through it. Which I also would suggest that you seek out people that have had similar diagnosis and and ideally people who are doing well because that also helps to talk to people that like help you feel like I'm going to be okay. But it often helps you f develop the questions and then write them down and then pass them along to other people like I do because I think you, it's hard to come up with them and, then, and when you're, you're when you're stressed. And you're emotional, like you're emotionally stressed, you're physically stressed, you're, it's hard to think straight, right? Like, I mean, they know that anxiety causes your brain to work differently, right? Like your memory doesn't work as well, which is why it helps to have somebody sit with you so that when they say these are your options, if you didn't write it down, they, you have somebody else who heard the same thing and they'll hear more than you because you're anxious. I often encourage folks, always bring someone to your appointments with you, always, yeah. and bring a notebook. Or use your phone and use the notes section in your phone or send yourself an email, whatever it is you want to do. And you know, sometimes it's best to give the person with you the notebook because, you know, when my doc told me this is the diagnosis, immediately I started thinking about how am I going to work? How am I going to take care of the kids? How am I, I have such and such, I have to get my teeth cleaned in two weeks. How am I going to deal with, you know, yeah. you just think about the most random things that you're, because your mind is just, I feel like my mind is just, spinning trying to grab yeah. a hold of something to try to have some kind of control yeah. in those initial days yeah. 
and you're you know trying to have a conversation with a doctor and take notes and ask proper questions when you are spinning out of control and feeling powerless <laughs> it's a really difficult time yeah. to have yeah well and i think depending on the person like when i for me like you hear cancer i mean if my head hurts i think oh my god i have brain cancer right <laughs> like but if when they right. tell you you have cancer you're like oh my god i'm gonna die right like the first so it's almost like somebody it's almost like you think you're dying right and then you sort of come for me it was like and then you come back to like oh i'm I'm not, right? <laughs> I'm like, like I, I, you know, you can get through this and like, let's figure out a way to get through this, but it takes people different amounts of time. It's like those stages of grief, right? Or whatever it is, you, it takes people different amounts of time and different people have different amount of reserve depending on the other stressors in their life. Um, mm -hmm. you know, if I was dependent on my income at the time and that was, I was barely making ends meet, that would be stressful, right? Like there's so many questions that you have about all the other parts of your life absolutely absolutely so that said you went with the double mastectomy i had a double mastectomy and they i had the implants put in right at surgery it was sort of comical because the plastic surgeon i don't know if this is the way it always i have only ever really had one surgery but my husband who was in the waiting room like after the uh surgical oncologist was done removing all the tissue she called they call and so my husband got on the phone and then he had actually he she, she he may have had a per, an in-person conversation with her but the plastic surgeon like called and Tom said that one of the things he said is actually I think she's a little bit bigger than she was before and he said it was almost like he was waiting for him to say thanks doc <laughs> <laughs> um, oh uh, but yeah I had a double mastectomy and uh and it went I tend to be a person who tolerates procedures well like I don't mm -hmm. feel the same kind of pain that other people like I'll have a procedure and people will say it's supposed to be really uncomfortable and I'll think that wasn't that bad right in the, like I they told people told me oh you won't be able to wash your hair for two weeks afterwards and I could touch my head the day of surgery like I just really no kidding yeah so I mean I think one of the things I would say is don't it, it's good to know what could happen so that if it does, it's not so scary, right? Like, you know, okay, I'm not going to, I may not be able to wash my hair for two weeks, but you shouldn't always, you shouldn't necessarily assume the worst or assume the, you know, like if you talk to people, you shouldn't assume you're going to be like that person who had the worst experience because you might not be. Yeah. It may vary. Like I have a high pain threshold. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And my body was the poster child for like every side effect possible. <laughs> like I had so many struggles and so many side effects. It'd be also wise to not refer to me. You know, I did not set the bar. I was like kind of, I was an outlier of like ridiculous side effects where I would be laughing, belly laughing with my wife at like how many side effects I had all at once. Yeah. Like it was crazy. You know, that point where, where, where life hits you with so many difficult circumstances where you just start laughing yeah like okay yes. cosmic joke <laughs> yeah <laughs> like <laughs> i'm all done getting upset because this is turned to crazy yeah well you have to have that <laughs> otherwise you can't get through i mean you have to sort of take it one moment at a time and find the humor where you can and yeah um but yeah well i mean i assume like had i had i did not have to do 
radiation or chemotherapy because so they did a sentinel node biopsy where they did in they inject the dye i don't even remember where they injected it but they inject the dye in maybe into your breast somewhere and the place where it first accumulate the the lymph node that it first accumulates in it it's a I don't remember if it's a colored dye or if it's a radioactive, like something they can detect with, like, I don't remember how they they detect that it has the most of this chemical in it, but that's what they call the sentinel lymph node. And it's the first lymph node that your brain, your breasts drain to. So if you had metastatic cancer, that's the that lymph node would show cancer. So they test, okay. they test that, they did a sentinel node, lymph node biopsy on both sides to make sh- to see um even though i had dcis they don't know when they go in whether when they do a patho you know they, when they do this slicing and dicing and look at it all whether they're also going to find invasive cancer and so they test that in the in while you're in surgery i've heard from friends that are surgeons or anesthesiologists or other doctors that when they, so they, they send the lymph nodes out while you're in surgery and a preliminary result comes back while you're in surgery, because if it's positive, Mm. they'll take out more lymph nodes. And I've heard that when it comes back negative for any cancer, they cheer in the operating room. Like that's kind of like, everybody's like, yay. Um, so that's sort of nice to know when you go in that they're rooting for. I mean, that makes sense, but it's just sort of like a nice thing that you don't even think about, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Wonderful. Um, and so you don't know until you come out what uh, right. what the conclusion is. But for me, they did not. There was nothing in the sentinel lymph nodes. And then the plastic surgeon comes in and looks at the what the tissue that's left after they do the mastectomy. And, just, and for me, decided, like, yes, I can put implants in directly. Um and so you wake up a little woozy and you wait for, you don't, you know, you're not really with it. And you're thinking, you know, with the sentinel node biopsy, good, bad, do I have implants? Do I have expanders? And, and then eventually somebody tells you. So for me, that was really great. One thing I didn't mention is that a lot of the stuff of, of, as the recovery information, like, so when you have, after you have breast surgery, you typically feel uncomfortable lying flat on your back and you can't lie mm. on your side and or on your stomach. Um, and so what most people do is they either get a wedge or a lot of people sleep in a lazy boy for a number of days after they get home, oh. like a recliner. And um, not all doctors are necessarily aware of that. I know that sounds weird, but I know a plastic surgeon. I'll just leave it at that. And I mentioned this to him, who was not mine, in a different state. And he wasn't aware that you couldn't lie flat after you have a double mastectomy. But he does wow. He does breast work. So I think that, you know, talking about how you cope or what it's like afterwards, for me, came... A lot of the information came from people who had been through it. So the other thing is that people said are, um, like, so somebody who had gone through it, like, lent me her recliner, which we put in the bedroom and I slept in for a number of days. Um, Somebody said, have a visiting nurse come to the house. Like, you can ask while you're in the hospital to have a visiting nurse come because you have drains that drain out the fluid. So anytime you have an empty Mm -hmm. cavity in your body, there's fluid that generates just naturally and so you they have little 
tubes coming out of you that drain into little bags. And so you have to change them, the bags and things. And you, and it's daunting. Like, even if they tell you in the hospital what to do, it just feels weird. You're not used to having tubes coming out of oh you. You get sent home. Yeah. And so it was reassuring to have, like in the hospital, you can say, I would like to have a visiting nurse come. Even if you feel like you don't want, like I'm very um, independent and I feel like I could do everything myself, but it was really nice to have uh, somebody come to the house and tell me, yeah, you're doing this right. Like, so they help you with whatever care, mm-hmm. you, wound care you have to deal with. And then she also said, oh, your reconstruction looks really nice. I've seen a lot of them and that's a good one. And so... I wouldn't know, no. right? But it gave, made right. me feel like, oh, this is okay because you have stitches everywhere and it looks sort of creepy. But it was, you know, I, it, was a, it was something I wouldn't have thought to ask for. Nobody offered it to me. But because other people had mentioned it, I asked for it and it was really helpful. That's wonderful. That's wonderful that you can ask for that because, you know, it's like when we came home, my wife and I came home with my, you know, my first child with her, my first child ever, her second. But I was like, wow, they're letting us leave the hospital with this baby? Yeah. Like we don't have to pass a test? <laughs> it's like going home and having to like have things hanging out of your body. For me, my first surgery, I had one of those drains yeah. you know, hanging out of me. Uh, for my second surgery, I asked the doc, you know, Dr. D'Angelica, you know, and the drain, how long will that be? And he's like, oh, we found techniques where we no longer need to uh, put those drains in your body. I was like, really? I was like, well, I was like, I'm so glad I'm at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Like, it's just phenomenal i came out of my first surgery and had a colostomy yeah and then you know you think were you worried that like i was so worried like am i gonna feel at home in my own body were you thinking like how am i gonna like were you worried that you would never really feel (sighs) like yourself sort of laura i love that question because i've never put it that way and I, i i forgot about it like i wanted oh it's so emotional i wanted out of my body yeah I had a pouch hanging off my abdomen and I pooped in it. Yeah. Like, I mean, I say, I say in past tense because now I use, I do a process every morning. I basically give myself an enema and I flush out my large intestine and the whole thing empties out in 45 minutes. And then I don't even think about having a colostomy for most of the day. Oh, that's nice. It's really, it's unfortunate. You have to have a certain amount of large intestine remaining in order to do that. And currently I do. Uh, But yeah, like, I didn't want to be in my body. I wanted to get away from this pouch hanging off of me. This, it, you know, I would look down at it, and when I would take off the pouch, it was a two-piece system. So, you know, there'd be a little wax ring around where the large intestine comes out of the body. It's called the stoma. Yeah. There's a wax ring with a bandage, and there's like a little mini Tupperware kind of thing where that you can snap on and off the pouches. Mm-hmm. And I'd take it off and I'd see this part of my large intestine exiting my abdomen and I ah oh, the emotion is just filling me right now like I didn't want to see that I didn't want that to be me I wanted to just get out of my body and have a different body it was so uncomfortable yeah yeah it's like you have this foreign I mean for me it was implants but it's like you have this foreign thing and you're like is this gonna feel and in the beginning it feels so weird like for me what it did especially because I didn't have expanders is it felt really tight like it feels like you know it because they pull put it under the muscle so the muscles pulled really tight it's not used to having this you know thing that's like about this big underneath the muscle um and so it feels constricting I mean you can breathe and everything it's just this feeling like you never have felt anything like that before and you're in pain and you just think am I going to be able to 
physically feel at home in my own body? And am I going to emotionally be able to feel like not have to think about the fact that I had cancer or there's a risk of, you know, like at some point in the future, because you think about it like every moment when you're going through it. Right. And I do, I always say to people, like, I don't think about it. I don't, I feel like my breasts are my breasts, even though they're implants and they're like, I don't think about it every day. I don't feel different. I'm sure I feel different if I were to like pop back into my body when I had Mm -hmm. real breasts, but I don't feel like I feel different. Right. Like I just feel like, I don't feel like I have anything artificial in my body. It just feels like, I mean, I don't have nipples. I didn't do the, like, you can do reconstruction mm-hmm. that way. But a plastic surgeon encouraged me because he's a plastic surgeon. But my surgical oncologist was like, they often flatten out after, you know, like, over time, like, within a few years. And I'm like, I don't know what's the point, mm. right? And you get tattoo. You can get a tattoo for a nipple. Yeah. So my husband and I would joke, like, what about a peace symbol? Or what? You know, like, <laughs> what could you do on there? But I'm just like, I don't know. I'm... I was over 40. I think if I had been young, you know, if I had been younger, I would have probably done it. Like if I weren't married and hadn't breastfed and all that stuff. Right. Like imagine if you were single, you didn't, you know, you weren't married, you didn't have kids. You might be just kind of like, you know, it's, I had a guest who is single. Yeah. And, you know, she's divorced and like, you know, she had these concerns about like, wait a second, like I'm... How am I going to be received? You know, and she oh, had, yeah. she's, she's, you know, she's uh, dealt with it beautifully. Yeah. Really inspiring, in fact. But all these concerns immediately come up, and you, it's great. You're like, okay, yeah, I don't need that. <laughs> yeah. I have had dreams where I go somewhere and I have no shirt on, and everybody's like, where? What's, you know, like, like I'm like realizing that mm. I look different, right? Like it, it was more closer to when it happened, right? Um, but I I always, that's one of the things I tell people, like, I, I feel, I don't think about cancer every day and I do feel at home in my own body. And because I think to me, those are things I worried about. And I want people to know like that this is not, it, it was a, 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 you know, a blip on the, I always call it a blip on the radar. I mean, maybe more than a blip, but it was, you know, it's just something I went through and now I'm okay. And I don't think about it every moment. And you sort of have, to, you can see that in the future, like, okay, I can, it's, this is going to be something that I can put behind me. And I think that's important, yeah. right? I mean, I, I think it's super important. I, like I said, I didn't want to be in my body. Yeah. And now I'm so comfortable wearing a pouch. Yeah. And it took a number of years before I was willing to go to the beach with a pair of swimming trunks on and just have my pouch hanging off my abdomen. Yeah. Uh, it was, I simply wouldn't do it. I, I would take it off and I'd put a, a big Band-Aid over the stoma. Yeah. And there was a sticky substance that you can get from these, uh, you know, uh, companies that provide supplies for folks with colostomies and it made the Band-Aid stick better. Yeah. And, you know, eventually, you know, years later, I started wearing the pouch to the beach. You know, I'd go to a beach where, like, nobody knew me. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then... uh. Now I'm just like, whatever. But it took a long time. Yeah. It took a long time. I, I, did, I had lots of worries about how people were going to respond. Eventually where I landed is if people are really uncomfortable with what they're seeing, I get that it, what made the shift happen most powerfully is when I realized that they're not responding to me. Right. They're yeah. responding to their thinking about me. They're just projecting all of their 
life experience onto the pouch they're looking at. And I don't need to take that personally. Yeah, well, I think it's just like my mom has dementia. And I think when people, some people, when they see somebody with dementia or they see somebody with a colostomy bag or they see somebody with breast cancer that had breast cancer and somehow it's obvious it makes all of their own fears about that come out, right? Like, oh, what would I feel like if I... I mean, with kids or with some people, it's just like, that's weird. What is that? Right. But it's not like you. It's just the the thing. Right. The the thing that they're not used to seeing. But for some people, it's just the thought they can't handle the idea of having that happen to them. And I think, that's yes. you know, there you go. And it brings it all up. Yeah. The kids kids have such a fresh mind. You know, they're not bringing a lifetime of history to their observation of your altered body. My bought, I brought my son and two of his friends to a swimming area a few summers ago. Yeah. This was a bunch of summers ago because they were, they were significantly younger. And his one classmate, she saw my pouch and she said, what's that? And I told her, you know, the doctor gave this to me because I had cancer and they needed to uh, do a surgery. And she, she wanted to know what it was for. And I said, well, you only, I'll only tell you if you promise to laugh. And she said, okay. I said, it's where the poop goes. And she started laughing. And so she looked at me quizzically and she thought to herself, hmm. So she asked a few more questions. I explained. She said, oh, so so you don't need your butt. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, no, I don't. Yeah. Like, from her point of view, no, the fact that the glutes help you walk and stand erect is beside the point. It was just, yeah. you know. <laughs> It was adorable and sweet, and there was yeah. and there was no judgment. She's just like, okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. I think kids <laughs> just take things because the kids asked me after I came. First, they were really relieved when I came home, and I, one of them said something like, "You look normal." And I was like, I think they were somehow afraid that I was going to come home and like my face, or I was going to look you know really, 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 really sick, or I I don't know, right? The, and then sure. within a day or two Catherine said can I see your boobs and um and I thought I was like I I said sure because I wanted to act matter of fact but I didn't want to act like this was something that I had to hide and you know and they had sort of like black stitching and it looks a little scary and I showed her and she was like oh okay (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know and she was in second grade maybe um and it wasn't that big a deal for them to adjust to um, I think with Catherine, what I thought was sort of comical is I had shown her beforehand, I had said, they're going to make me new breasts, right? Like I said, I didn't use the word cancer. I used, um, I actually wrote this note out to everybody and I explained in the note that I wasn't calling it cancer because I was worried that the kids would tell somebody my mom has cancer and people would go, <gasps> you know, oh mm. no, is she going to die or, you know, something like that. And that would make them more scared than they needed to be. So I would just say, I have some bad cells. I have some bad stuff in my breast and they're going to take it out and they're going to, and then Catherine would say, well, what's going to happen to your boobs then? Are you going to have them? And I said, yes. And I showed her pictures of other people and their breasts after the surgery. And what I didn't realize is that she was sort of horrified because she thought, well, I know what mom's breasts look like now, and they're going to end up looking like that. Like she didn't realize Mm. that breasts look different on different people. So. (laughs) Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. (laughs) So she didn't realize like this picture I was showing her looked like they looked before the surgery. (laughs) So she was like, oh, because I remember her saying something like, they don't look that different than they looked before. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, oh, I thought they were going to look like that one woman that you showed me. (laughs) 
that had like right. a big in, nipples or whatever it was. And I realized like that's a concept she hadn't yet grasped. <laughs> yeah, that's really great. Um, but uh, but I did, you know, I met some one of the five people I talked to not only didn't tell her child, she told nobody, nobody knew that she had had breast cancer, but her husband and like a couple close friends. So she never had this support network. Oh, wow. She never told her children and she changed like she, so she couldn't let her kids who were little, like see her when she changed. And, and she said, I don't want to be defined by this. Like, I don't want to be the person who survived breast cancer or had breast cancer, which was such a different uh, approach than I took. I still don't quite get it because I don't think people think that about me or about other people who had cancer. To some extent, it makes me think more of people in that they have that strength and they also are sort of um, evidence that life goes on. Like you can see people who had different kinds of cancer going on and doing great things and having happy lives and being active. And you can look at them and think when you get diagnosed, like I thought of people I knew and I thought, oh, she's doing fine. So I can do fine too. Hmm. But I thought how interesting that she hadn't really told. I just found her through one of her very one of her very close friends. I had said I'm looking to talk to people that had similar you know situation, and a mutual friend asked her if it was okay to put me in touch with her. Um, but it was a I I've met very few people like that. But it's yeah, me too. I had a guest on the podcast who said she is a private person and. She, you know, grew up around people who were proud to be private. And I said, so tell me, like, what does that mean? I don't, I don't know what that means. And I really don't understand, like, what does it mean to be proud of being private? And she said, well, you know, I, she said what your friend said, or this woman that you met. She said, I didn't want to go to my favorite, you know, place for drinks and have them look at me and be like, she's the one with cancer. Yeah. And so she chose to kept to keep it private. And I said, oh, that makes perfect sense. Because I didn't mean, to me, I'm like private. I'm like, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you were around or, you know, those of you listening, Laura is the sister-in-law of uh, my sister's best friend. And my sister yeah. practically grew up in Laura's husband's home <laughs> when yeah. she wasn't at our place. So we've known each other. Yeah. For a long time. And I don't know if you know, but like, you know, I can't remember if you know, I kept a blog. Yeah. And yeah. as I started keeping the blog, like, my goodness, like, I would put everything on the blog. Eventually, it was just like, there was, I'd be like, okay, what am I trying, what do I not want you to know today? That was literally how I opened up one, that was my first sentence in a blog. It's just constantly sharing it. I felt so liberated by putting the information out there because once I didn't have to hide it, how do I say this? Once I put the information into the world, I no longer had to keep it hidden. Right. Well, so you don't have to. Me. You don't have to be anything that you're not, because you really put out there all the like the the physical stuff, but also probably I imagine the harder stuff was putting out like what was going on in your head, what you were worrying about, what you even because even yes. like you think, oh, is this going to sound dumb that I'm worrying about this, or is this going to sound mm-hmm. selfish, or is this going to sound I don't know, you know, so it's all the weird. Yeah, yeah, like all that stuff. But in the end, like I always say to my kids, they'll worry about something and I'll say, well, I mean, even like weird, you know, mom, you were being weird. And I'll say, 
Well, if, you know, your friend Joe's mom is being weird, does that make you not want to be his friend because his mom's goofy? And he's like, no. You know, like, it doesn't... There's so much out there that you think will... If you worry that it's going to affect how people like you or feel about you, and you realize that if somebody else did the same thing, it wouldn't affect... You wouldn't... If anything, you'd like them more, <laughs> That's a great question for a kid when yeah. mom or dad is acting weird around people. It's embarrassing. When yeah. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> When I would go to publish certain blog posts, you know, I would just get all welled up with emotion. Like, oh my gosh, am I actually going to publish this? And my fears were, you know, will I appear weak? Will I appear less than masculine or less than as masculine as I want to appear to others? Yeah. Will I appear you know, insecure or, or ignorant, so many things. And uh, it was, for me, it was a, you know, I don't want to use the word addicting because that seems to, you know, minimize people's addiction struggles, but it was, uh, it was causing me to grow and develop in ways that I just got hooked on and loved. And I was like, okay, like I'm growing so much and I'm, finding courage in areas where I never thought I would find courage. Yeah. In. So well, I'm and it also makes it... you realize like, I'm okay. Like, actually I put that out there and nobody <laughs> thought that was weird and nobody thought that that was disturbing or, or anything bad. Like people actually thought that was good. So I, maybe I'm actually okay as a person. Right. right? Like, yes. <laughs> cause you, yeah. I'm a self judge, you know, like I'll like, I'm very, I'm a perfectionist and I don't like to fail and all those things. And then you put something out there and you're like, Oh, the thing that I thought was so horrible about me or that I was thought was not good enough or whatever, it's actually good enough, right? <laughs> like it's so right, and it actually creates connection. I remember oh, Brene yeah. Brown's TED talk came out when I was keeping my blog and she was talking about vulnerability and shame. Yeah. And, you know, which is her whole entire thing. And the more we tell on ourselves, you know, we don't want to be truly seen by people because we are afraid we'll feel ashamed. And the more we actually tell on ourselves, the more connected we feel. Yeah. And that's exactly what was going on. It was just, it was so wonderful. Like actually, you know, as I'm worried, how are people going to respond? What it did is it created more connection and more and more folks were like, yeah, like I get that. I'm not going through cancer, but I get that completely. Yeah. Well, and I think also then when other people are going through cancer of any kind or some medical, I mean, honestly, even if it's some other unrelated medical thing, they feel like, well, you, they understand, they feel more comfortable coming to you because they're like, I can say this dumb thing or this depressed mm -hmm. thing or this, because he, you know, he put that out there. She was able to, willing to talk about it in the moment. So I'm going to, you know, I had people call me and be like, I just had a doctor call me and I have to have a, have to have follow-up, you know, whatever, or have a biopsy. And I just took some Xanax and I don't know what I'm going to do, you know, but they were willing mm. to call and do that because they're like, okay, so I know, I know you had this and I know you felt some of the same feelings and I know you're going to think it's okay because you did, you know, you've been there. And so I think by hiding, and that's why to me, it's sort of like, if I think one of the things that happens from having cancer or going through any crisis is that you're more able to help other people go through it. And so to me, like, I felt sort of like I need to tell people that I'm going through this and then I need to show them that I'm okay. And that helps other people. Cause if I, I don't know. To me, that was like, okay, that's part of my role having this, right? That's some part of the purpose. I'm always sort of this person who's, Absolutely. I think that things 
happen for a reason. And I don't mean that in terms of like, you have some horrible experience because you're bad. That's not what I like, because you did something wrong. That's not what I mean. I mean, I think there, I guess maybe a better way to say is I always think there's some sort of silver lining or some sort of role that you play because of the, the, you know, some good that can come out of the bad thing. And so I'm always sort of looking for what that is. Right. No, I do that too. I mean, sometimes do a fault. Folks have to remind me like, you know, I'll see someone who behaved really badly and I'll start talking about, well, maybe they're coming from this perspective. And friends of mine will sometimes say, hey, Bert, sometimes people are just jerks. <laughs> <There is. laughs> yeah. And I have to be reminded of that because I always seek, you know, like the light at the end of the tunnel and, and the benefit of it. And I always, like, I always return to that. No, I agree. Well, I do that with politics, right? Like, well, if I was struggling and I wasn't, I didn't have money <laughs> and I would, you know, like, would I want some, to, ha- to elect somebody who said, I'm going to give you more money, right? Like, I'm going to put more right. money, of course, yeah. or I'm going to get you a job. Yeah, I mean, I, like, it's a different perspective, right? You have to always acknowledge the perspective that you're coming from and I remember when before I was a parent th- watching parents who were like really exasperated and probably a little too sharp with their kids in the supermarket thinking like what a bad parent and then when I was that parent <laughs> I was like mm-hmm. oh now I get how frustrating it can be with you know two whiny little kids <laughs> and you're just trying to get the, the food shopping done <laughs> yeah yeah so. so for me I really just found a whole new way of living by telling on myself around others because I noticed that it creates space for others to be more comfortable around me. That said, I also noticed some folks hear me being so open and honest and telling on myself and they're just like, oh my gosh, check please. Can I please get away from me? I don't want to hear about this. And I get that too. And going back to the people who keep their diagnosis private, as foreign as that is to me, I really get what it provided them. You know, it, you yeah. know, that woman, you're, the woman you spoke to, it sounds like was most important is that, you know, she keep it to herself, not be known as this person, not have her children affected by it. And uh, I imagine that takes incredible strength. Yeah, because I don't think you have the same level of support. I think you just have to know yourself. That's where, like, even for the treatment, mm-hmm. for me, I know, I knew myself well enough to know that I would, if I didn't get a double mastectomy, I would be really anxious. Like if I had to go get a mammogram every six months, I would, it would be, it would have been difficult. And I, and I would be really stressful, stressed. And it would, that sort of reinforce itself. I met a woman who, I can't remember if she had a lumpectomy or a single mastectomy, but she was having mammograms every six months. And she, and she said, she was an anxious person. And she said, you know, I wish I had had, thought about how I was going to feel afterwards because every time I have to go for a mammogram for at least a month if not longer before the mammogram I get really 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 anxious and it affects like anybody who knows anxiety which I know pretty well sadly but um you can have all sorts of physical manifestations of you know depression anxiety um you know whether it's GI problems or aches and pains and all and so she has like this it's really hard for weeks in advance of the mammogram. And then you sort of have to come down off of that and get normalized again. And then, you know, several months later, you have to go through it all again. And she has to keep doing that forever. Right. Or, and, and that's, it's for me, it would have been mentally too much for other, the person I know who had breast cancer twice and, and didn't have a mastectomy, 
she handles it in different ways. Like she has more aggressive tests, like, or, you know, she does MRIs and she, but she, she's able to handle that, right? She's a different person than I am. And so I think you have to sort of think about who am I and how am I going to feel if I take course A, of you know, course of action A versus B um, and think about what you're going to be most, you know, happiest with in the end. It's hard to think about it in the moment, I think. But. Sure. It's, it's wonderful that you had the capacity to do that because really what I'm hearing you say is you were distinguishing, okay, what's more important to me, you know? no procedures in the future, no regular testing in the future, or having my breasts removed. I can really get for some people, they'll be like, uh, keep my breasts, go with the tests. Yeah. <laughs> like, and then for you, you were just like, uh, no, I don't want the stress, the anxiety, the higher risk of having recurrence, like take them out. Like both approaches you know, are understandable. Yeah, well, and I think some of it you might know. I mean, one way to think about it might be like, what are the things that most, what are the worries that most present themselves when you're first diagnosed, right? Like the first thing was, am I going to see my kids graduate from high school? I remember saying to my husband, I just have to make it to the kids are 20. <laughs> That's what I said to a dear friend and, of mine. Oh, and Tom's ahead. like, what about me? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, you know, you'd be okay. <laughs> And so, uh, like to me that, but some people might be like, especially I could see if you're, if you don't have kids, you don't have a partner, like we, or maybe even if you do, right. Like you think like, but my breasts, like maybe you have beautiful breasts and that's like, you know, that's defined you sort of, or I don't know. I mean, I think if it depends on what sort of really presents itself, if you're sort of think about what are the worries that are really the ones that keep coming up and what does that say about what's important to me? that might help you understand what the right course of action is, sort of. I don't know. I mean. Yeah. The person really just has to look within and see what matters most of them. I uh, said to a friend as I was going through my first diagnosis, I'm like, I just, you know, I just want to see the kids graduate from high school. Yeah. The same thing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, when you're a parent, you want to be, there for your kids yeah and your uh, son was young right did you were you always uh, when he was five months old yeah at five months you wouldn't explain it but like at what point did you do you remember how you shared what was going on with him or how you explained it when he was little yeah well with my stepson he was nine. Oh, that's right yeah. and we sat down with him and just explained to him that the doctor said i had cancer and you know, giving you the short version, you know, and he said, can you die from it? Or, you know, are you going to die from it? And I said, you know, people can die from this. I said, I don't think that I'm going to. Yeah, it's a possibility, but I'm working with great doctors and yada, yada, yada. With my son, I don't remember how much I talked. I think, you know, when he was, he was like four going into five and I was, you know, when I was doing chemotherapy and wasn't feeling well, I explained to him that I had cancer and yeah. I wasn't feeling well because of the medicine they were giving me. Yeah. And really what was important to me was to have him notice how comfortable and okay I was yeah. with the future that I anticipated living into. Yeah. And so, you know, 
I asked him years later if he was really concerned, and he said no. And I think it was because he saw from the behavior I was modeling that he didn't have much to worry about. Yeah. Like, Papa's not feeling well. Papa's sick from the treatment, but, you know, he could tell that I was okay with it and his mom was okay with it, so clearly he didn't have to worry. Yeah, I think that's, like, that's... It's it's so hard to manage. I don't know what I would have done if it was... If my prognosis was iffier, right? Because I yeah. I was able to say, like, I will be okay. And I, you know, like, and I think they, like I said, when I came home from the hospital, they were relieved that I just looked like mom. Like, I didn't look like, you know, I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't know what they expected, right. but that it's yep. just like, oh, this is the same mom I knew from before she went to the <laughs> hospital. <laughs> Yeah, my first diagnosis, the mortality rate was 25%. So folks listening, you know, if you don't know what that means, is it means there's a 25% chance you'll die from it and a 75% chance you'll live. And a buddy of mine said, you know, if those are Vegas odds, I'd take them. They're good. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. It's like you have to choose or you hopefully choose to look at the glass half full, right? Yeah, and that's how I tend to look at things. And I really got clear, like, you know, if I'm going to die... I'm going to live as fully and powerfully as I can muster up. Yeah. And again, like I think the kids really got that, you know, that I was, uh, that it was going to be okay because that's what they were seeing from who we were being. However, when my son turned 10 ish, we were having dinner one night and he said, Papa, it's a miracle that you're still alive. And it just stopped me in my tracks. And I said, yeah, buddy, it is. I was like, I'm so glad you didn't die. I'm like, yeah, me too, bud. Like, I feel very, very lucky. Yeah. And it was such, I was going to say it was such a profound thing to hear from him. I don't know if it was profound. All I know is, all I can say is that in that moment, it was clear to me that he got what I'd been going through. Yeah, well, that's what, you know, they're, they're at different ages, they're sort of capable of uh, absorbing what that really means, right? Like they. Yeah, because people in my life, since I was diagnosed, people in my life have gotten cancer and died. Yeah. And he knows them. Oh, yeah. And, or knows of them, you know? And I think he was, he was putting it all together and realized, like, wow, some people don't live through this. And my, my dad did. Yeah. But I think when they're really little, like they don't necessarily have that same concept of death. Like I remember Catherine's, I think it was Catherine. Yeah, it was Catherine. Her goldfish died. And I thought, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And I feel, I think I looked, I can't remember. I, I Somehow I had some information and she came home and I said, you know, I can't remember his name, died. I think it was whatever the gold, Elmo's goldfish's name was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, you know, I'm afraid that he died and we could have a little funeral or we could bury him in the backyard. We could do this and, or we could flush him down the toilet. And she was like, ah, we should just flush him down the toilet. And she skipped off. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, okay, here, I was so worried all day that she was going to come home from kindergarten. And she's just like, yeah. you know. <laughs> so. My son wanted to have a service, you know. I wanted to have a, wanted to go through a process of releasing the fish into, oh, really? uh, back to the earth, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, no, and when, when I was going through my diagnosis, I'm a huge Beastie Boys fan. Yeah. And Adam Yock got, I think it was some kind of throat cancer or esophageal cancer. Adam Yock got cancer, yeah. one of the members of the Beastie Boys, and he died. 
and I didn't know, and you know, the internet net was still you know, not, it's not, it certainly wasn't what it is now, and social media wasn't close to what it is now. And I found out that he died, and someone I knew said, yeah, I knew he died, but you know, I, di I didn't want to tell you, you know, because I had cancer. And I thought to myself, like, you know, I, and I get their concern, like they didn't want me to hear about someone dying of cancer, because they didn't know that from my point of view, I'm like, dude, like, I have cancer, I'm really clear I might die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, people said to me, I think it was around the time that Elizabeth Edwards died. And they said, does that freak you out that Elizabeth Edwards died? Maybe it was mm. shortly after I had breast cancer or something. And I said, you know, so I, I think I did a little homework and it was something like she hadn't had a mammogram in 10 years, right? Mm. Um, when she was diagnosed and she clearly had the ability you know, like it wasn't that she didn't because she didn't have insurance or she didn't have the money. I mean, there's lots of people, sadly, that don't have the resources to be able to do that. And so for me, I was like, well, it. I think it can scare you that other people, you know, you do look to other people to see like, how are they doing or did they survive? If it, I mean, it's different if you, he had throat cancer and, you, you know, you have, when you have different kinds of cancer. It's not, I think that when you haven't had cancer, you think cancer. But when you've had cancer, you're like, oh, well, this is breast cancer. This isn't, you know, colon cancer. This is colon cancer. This isn't, you know, thyroid whatever it is, right? Like they're all pretty, you start to realize they're really pretty different in their prognosis and their treatments and their, but I don't know, like, I think what you start to realize is that every case is different. And this is something that's where I think worth pointing out. Like there's somebody I know here who had breast cancer and she had, I don't remember if it was she had triple negative, but she, she had a, some kind of breast cancer that was a higher risk, a higher, a, a lower survival rate. It still was, you know, mm -hmm. like let's say it was a 20% mortality rate or something. Um, but when she was looking online, there were all these stories of people who had recurrences and all these negative things right all these bad things happen and I said to her like remember the people that go online are often the people who have it recur like the people who it happened to and they never had it happen again don't go online they just go on with living their lives they don't go on to cancer forums to talk about it usually mm. um and I think that's important she was like oh yeah you're right I never really thought about the fact that like all these forums that I'm reading because I have cancer is it's gonna have all the people with all the worst cases that, you know, like for metastases or long-term complications or things like that, because they're looking for support. Um, and so I, yeah, I actually sure. had asked um, her, I have a, when we, we moved to Charlottesville and I, for peace of mind, like I have a breast surgeon here who happens to be the wife of a friend of mine. I mean, I'm friends with them, but they, uh, just so that I can go, I go in once a year and for breast cancer, once you have implants, the only, if you felt it, it would just feel like a little pebble. It's, there's almost, there was only just like a thin lining of breast tissue on the skin of the breast and that's it. So you okay. would feel it because it's, you know, you like your, there's your muscle, a very like cells, right? Like just some cells of the breast and then the skin. So you would, if it were to start in your breast again, you would feel like a little hard nodule I think or something right okay. so you really just you can detect it pretty well yourself but I just like for peace of mind to go in once a year um and so she was the doctor for this other friend who had had breast cancer and I had said to uh my doctor I said is there somebody that you know that has the same diagnosis as this friend that is doing well 
like maybe she's 10 years out or even five years out. Like she's doing well. She hasn't had a metastasis. Like, could she talk to this person? Like the, the person who's going through it right now and make her feel better. And she said, you know, we used to have a program at the hospital where we matched people up like that. Right. We took mm. somebody who'd had the same kind of breast cancer and we, we, and if they wanted, like, you know, they all both had to obviously sign up to do this. Um, we would connect them. She's like, I don't know why we stopped doing that, but she connected the two of them and I think that you can ask for that too, right? Like I'd love to talk to somebody who had what I have and is doing well because it's going to make, one, it's somebody to ask questions of, but two, it's going to make me have hope, like feel positive, like this can happen. Um, it's another, I think, way to advocate for yourself. And maybe some places won't do that, but, you know, my doctor was willing to do this for That's wonderful. Friend. One of the nurses in the uh, chemo infusion lab asked if she could give a guy my phone number because he was scheduled to have colostomy surgery and he wanted to know what it was like. Yeah, that's great. And uh, Yeah, we had a conversation. And then last fall, I started going to the local uh, colorectal cancer support group. Yeah. And as I was introducing myself, he said that he knew me and that we'd had a conversation. And it made such a difference in his life to get like that. Colostomy is really not a big deal. It, it seems enormous and you know, it's so wonderful when medical staff will you know connect people because if I mean heck that's why I created this podcast yeah, so people yeah. can hear the experience it make it makes such a difference to hear what folks have gone through yeah and so you other than seeing your doc you don't have any post-treatment tests that you do no blood work I, I don't it's sort of disconcerting when they put the implants in there's this paperwork that says you should have a um, MRI every, I think it says like every couple years, maybe it even says a year to make sure that it hasn't, um, burst or and it's not really bursting, but like it, that it's intact, mm-hmm. it's intact, but then they say, you don't really need to do that, but it's on the paperwork, right? So <laughs> for the first couple years, I was like, oh no, it feels a little different. Like maybe it's, oh, they're, they're silicone, but they're like a gummy bear implant. Like it, you know, it's like what you would think of as a, I don't even know if they, it's, it's like, you know, a gummy bear, a gummy worm, like it has, you can't really flow anywhere. Like if you, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it doesn't right, yeah. separate. It used to be that it was more flowy sort of like if you if it you could just deflate right and certainly if you have uh Uh, if you have a saline implant where it's just like salt water it will flat you know if you all of a sudden were to not be intact you just all of a sudden be flat right but um yeah but with silicone that's not true and that was a worry too because there's all this old old stuff out there about how silicone implants are bad for you and they can cause all these autoimmune things and my brother-in-law was a plastic surgeon and so I was able to ask all sorts of dumb questions but apparently that originated because in Japan people were just injecting silicone in like loosely into themselves oh, wow. and actually he said to me in plastic surgery silicone breast implants are one of the most researched topics of anything He's like, and I'm telling you, like, I would, they're safe. Like, I would put them in myself, right? Like, I would, they're, they're, but I think a lot of people have that worry because there is a history there of um, reports that it's, that it's a problem. But I actually went and did my own research, but, um, you know, which is when I say research, like looking at peer reviewed research, not looking at Mm -hmm. people talking about, (laughs) you know, not in a chat group. Um, Right. Yeah. You know, I had a guest who had implants. Yeah. And she got very sick and couldn't figure out why. I started doing research and saw that some women, some women's bodies 
just respond badly to this foreign object in their body. And she had them removed and all the symptoms went away. And now she's completely flat. And she, I mean, we're talking about anecdotal evidence, right? But she did say that she was so sick and nothing was making a difference. And the doctors couldn't figure out why. And she got them taken out and boom, she instantly felt better. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know about like whether having something inside you, I think that's really, it's sort of like, I shouldn't say, like there are some medical things out there where you hear that you hear the negative stories and you think that that's a really widespread, like, well, I'm afraid of mentioning because I'm not going to, but like Lyme disease, right? Like I think some people can have it very, very badly. And I think people think that that's the norm, right? Like that, Mm -hmm. oh, when people get Lyme disease, like everybody, you're going to end up in this. And the truth is like the vast majority of people take some antibiotic and then they're okay, right? (laughs) And so I think- I've had it twice. Yeah, like, so some people will be like, oh my gosh, I have Lyme disease. I'm gonna have these lifelong problems, right? And I think the same way, like, you can look up people, you can always find people that have a big problem with something, but it's hard to have the, like, to get the perspective on like, okay, but what percentage of people, because you have to assume, they have to go into assuming, like, I'm gonna be in the majority for the most, you know, likely, don't have a problem, right? And yeah. and I don't think there's any way to know, right? Bodies react to different things. I mean, I have yeah. my pain medication story is like I, after my breast surgery, was really, 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 really nauseous. And my friend who is a pediatric anesthesiologist happened to be visiting and she said to the nurse, how much pain medication is she on? It was the day, I mean, I had just come out of surgery. And she said, how much pain medication is she on? And she's like, oh, she's on such, such a milligrams. And my friend said, well, that's awfully high. She only, she's like, what, she asked me what I weigh. And she's like, that's (laughs) like awfully high. Don't you think you could have that? And she might be, and they're like, well, we like to make sure we keep pain at bay. And she, you know, so, so my friend sort of asked me some questions, Mm. suggested to the nurse, the nurse asked the doctor and they halved my pain meds. I was still in no pain and I was not nauseous. Like I wasn't sick to my stomach anymore, but you don't really want to be throwing up after surgery because it's you know, the spasming and stuff is uncomfortable. So just having somebody, you know, like the thing is, I guess I wouldn't have known to ask that. And I was still a little out of it, but having somebody there who can ask some questions, like, I just think bodies react differently to procedures and medicine and, and things. And so you don't, the the worst thing to do is presume that your body is going to be like that worst case. It may be, but it's the odds are that you're going to, you know, you have to go into it thinking like, okay, so most people are okay. I'm probably, you know, not going to be the one that reacts to the implant or the, because uh, I think by and large, it's a really, really safe procedure. And certainly a saline implant versus a, a, a silicone implant is not there's not a different bodily reaction because there's a surgical surrounding around it. Like you're not touching the silicone or the saline. What I'm hearing you say is there are people who have bad reactions from these implants. And there are people who get really bad cases of Lyme disease. And when you look at the research, you might want to be mindful of what you base your decision on because the percentage of people who have a bad response to an implant from the research you've done is far less than the number of people who have no issues with it. 
And, yeah, uh, well, it's like pregnancy, right? When you're pregnant, everybody wants to tell you these horror stories of their labor. Oh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and you're like, why are you telling me this? But, mm. but you know, for the most, the, you know, people don't go around telling these stories about how easy their labor was. I had a pretty easy labor, actually. So I usually tell people, like, don't listen to those stories. Like, it can, it mm. can be a great experience, but... Um, you know, it's yeah. it's hard not to focus on those though when you're worried about your health. Yeah, when you're worried. So, how many years out are you now? I'm almost ten. Wowie. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, I mean the negative thing, like so, my daughter now. I'm hoping the science changes. She'll have to start having a mammogram ten years earlier. So at thirty, thirty-one, she'll have to start having mammograms. I'm hoping the science, the diagnostic science changes so that maybe they'll have another way to manage that. Me too. My son has to get a colonoscopy at age 26 because I was diagnosed at age 36. Yeah. He brought that up like one or two years ago. I was like, Papa, does that mean there's a you know, greater chance of me having cancer? I'm like, kiddo. I don't think so. I mean, and, and, and you know, am I, and for anyone listening, am I basing that on any you know, scientific evidence? Nope. I'm just telling my kid, like, buddy, don't worry about it. Like, you know, I'm I, I'm an outlier in my family. You know, the cancer in my family was my dad's mom had pancreatic cancer and died of it. And I had some, like, I don't know how the second, third removed cousin whole thing works, but I just have, you know, like some cousins of my mom's, you know, husband and wife, they both uh, died of uh, colon cancer. And how my docs addressed that was like it was just kind of not, I wouldn't say irrelevant, but it didn't fit inside of the guidelines of, you know, there being a genetic yeah. uh, track, uh, path to follow. And, you know, I'll say, yeah, you know, yeah, you'll, you'll get the colonoscopy starting at age 26. But like you said, unless, you know, the ability to yeah. diagnose or, you know, foresee or uh, how did you put it? To, unless the diagnostic capability or the, I think it's just like if they can. Yeah, I don't know how I put it. <laughs> if the diagnostic capability, if the diagnostic capabilities are more advanced, uh, yeah, become more advanced. Like you know, I had a friend. You know, she did pass away from cancer, but she used to say to me, you know, Bert, there's no treatment for my cancer. There's nothing they can do. And I'd say, yet. Well, yeah, well, Carrie, there's actually nothing they can do right now. Yeah. Nothing they can do yet, yeah. but things are changing. Yeah, and you know, it's just well. And the thing is, like, what I would you know, tell your son or I tell like my daughter is the thing about a lot of cancers is the reason that most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time that people die of cancer, it's because it was caught later, right? Like you're not screening, you're not getting liver scans all the time or you're not getting colonoscopies at age 26, right? But if you have that diagnostic test, then like for your son, right? Like they would catch it at a polyp. Right. And so then they would just take it out and that's it, right? And for me, they caught it at stage zero, which is a new stage because they used to not be able to do, mammograms weren't as sensitive, you know, 50 years ago or 30 years ago or whatever they came mm-hmm. about. Um, so now a lot of people have stage zero and that's the stage you want. And so by him getting screened, it's a pain to have a colonoscopy, I mean, not physical pain, but it's like, you know, but the chances of him having cancer are decreased because they'll catch it before it becomes cancer. Yeah. And that points to the value of, of, uh, screening. Like what is the age to get a mammogram? 
40. 40. And colonoscopy age used to be 50, and now it's down to 45. Yeah. So people who are listening, you know, there are there are protocols out there so that you can get a jump on a possible diagnosis. And the reason they have them is because it is so common. Yeah, and people will say, I mean, I've had people say to me, like, I don't get mammograms because once I had one and they thought I had something and they had, I had to go through all this scare of biopsy and it was nothing. And I don't have a family history, so I'm not getting any more mammograms. Like, Whoa. and I think, well... Like every cancer, if, and they're not going to do this, but if you had like a full body MRI and they did colonoscopies and endoscopies on you and you like, you wouldn't die of cancer, right? Like if they, every cancer, if they catch it early, I mean, I, at least most cancers, I shouldn't say every cancer, but like whether it's melanoma or colon cancer, which when it's a polyp and it's precancerous or cervical cancer, which is also like, just like some bad, you know, they could just sort of cut off the piece, the small piece of whatever mm. it is. Um, even things like pancreatic cancer, which are usually have a, a higher mortality rate because it's caught later. If they were scanning your pancreas every week, right? Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't, nobody would die of pancreatic cancer. They're not going to do that, but right. for your... I mentioned that to my doc when I was getting my, my CT scans. And yeah. He's like, you know, after X number of years, we'll just stop doing them. I'm like... Well, why? What if there's something <laughs> happening? He said, you know, if we did CT scans, he goes, you wouldn't believe the things that go on in people's bodies yeah. that your body takes care of. Yeah. There's, there's growths in your body. There's tumors in your body. Your body just gets rid of it. It's just part of the process. It's not uncommon. You know, there are some cancers that they just come in and like there's just, they're just brutal. And they take people out pretty quickly and it's heartbreaking. Yeah. But there are certain cancers out there that, if we stay on top of the scans and do as recommended, you know, like you did, you can find it early. I was 36, so they didn't have, you know, they, they there were posters in the walls of the doctor's office that I went to. It said, if you remember fins on cars and the birth of rock and roll, you know, it's time for your colonoscopy. <laughs> and I'm thinking, uh, if you remember disco and uh, what kind of cars do we have? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> really ugly 70s cars it's time for your colonoscopy yeah well i mean i think if you have worrisome there's something my husband had had a throat surgery and the doctor said we were talking about throat cancer and he said we have patients come in that will come in and say i haven't been able to swallow solid food for several months and that's when they're coming in right like Oh and so I think that you have to, I mean, I'm hypervigilant, so I would know like if I was having the slight bit of swallowing difficulty, which can just come from anxiety or something, but it, it might be something, I think people are afraid of the diagnosis. I've known people in my younger life who had breast cancer who were just afraid. They felt a lump, but they were afraid. They sort of associated going to the doctor with a bad diagnosis, so they put it off. Luckily, the person I'm thinking of is alive mm. and well today, but um, like you want to get it diagnosed early. Like that increases your survival Absolutely. rate. In some I was cases, passing blood. Yeah. And I remember your whole story about uh, the doctor sort of letting it go on yeah. for such a long time because you were young, right? Yeah. Doctor said I had hemorrhoids over like a six or seven month period. Just kept telling me that I had hemorrhoids. Finally, I'm like, Doc, I pass gas and blood comes like spurting out, like something's not okay. Yeah. And he said, Well, you know, keep the fiber in your diet. So I, yeah, I called and, to, and the office, like, the next day and asked to see a specialist and you know sometimes you can even go to the doctor with your issues and have the doctor tell you you know it's not a concern 
And I just listened to my intuition and I was like, okay, like if this doc is not getting that I have an issue, like I don't hear anybody else talking about spraying blood, you know, every time they yeah. pass gas, like that's crazy. Yeah. Again, self-advocacy, get scanned. Yeah. Well, and the thing is for that, like you wouldn't have even, if it's rectal, like wouldn't they have been able to do like a sigmoidoscopy or a, a lesser procedure to find what? Them? Yeah, I went in and had a sigmoidoscopy, but the doc didn't ask me to do a, you know, when I went and saw the specialist, he gave me a sigmoidoscopy, but he didn't ask me to do an enema first and oh. there was so much blood he couldn't see. Yeah. So then he recommended the colonoscopy. Yeah. And then I knew, I was like... I, you know, the first thing he said before the sigmoidoscopy, he gave me a digital and he asked, do you have cancer in your family? Oh, gosh. And I was like, okay, that's where this is going. Yeah. So get your scans, get your screenings. They're out there. It's so important. And Laura, I just love to have this conversation with you. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. <laughs> yeah, it was good. It was fun. It's been really great. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. You got okay. it. Bye bye. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously the Cancer Podcast anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, please go to bertschold.com. That's B E R T S C H O L L.com. We are currently seeking funding through a foundation or advertising. In the meantime, this podcast is funded through a combination of community support and my own personal contributions. If you would like to contribute to the podcast so we can continue to bring episodes to you and people around the world, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash but seriously the cancer podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as the Saint Kid. See you all on the next episode and thank you so much for tuning in. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The hosts and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.